0: man. I could hear you singing today. That's good stuff. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Romans chapter 3. We're going to, Lord willing, finish out this chapter, and I know it's been a journey over the last two months to get this far, and uh, I'm proud of you for hanging in there. Romans chapter 3, and I got, I got some news for you. We got good news coming in this, in this section of scripture. As, uh, as, we, uh, as we turn there, let me go ahead and make you aware we have some new members that uh, have come into our, our church family over the last week, the Shuler family, James and Kathy. Uh, James and Kathy signed up for our membership class and were unable to be at it, so uh, we had a, another meeting, and if that's something that interests you, I encourage you to sign up, and I'll send you an email, and, and if this is a place that you want to call home, we will have those discussions. Well, I heard the Schuler's testimonies this past week, and uh, they, they told me their beautiful stories of coming to faith, and uh, so I would like to make a recommendation. We receive them into our church family. Do I hear a second? All those in favor, will you say, I love you? And that is the call of the church. And James, Kathy, we do love you. And uh, they'll be down front here. They didn't know this part, but you're going to be down front at the end of service so people can give you a holy high five and a, and a hug and stuff. So uh, that's, that's what we're doing. So if you are interested in membership, mediviewbavitchchurch.com forward slash membership, and uh, we'll be in contact. So Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31, is uh, as Leon Morris says, is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. So that's that's going to give you some insight of what an important part of scripture this actually is. I can remember when I was in school, I was a freshman in high school, and uh, I got in trouble. No surprise. I got in trouble one day, and I got in trouble by a teacher who was, he was known, like legend had it, that he would cause weeping and gnashing of teeth with one swing of the paddle, okay? And so I got in trouble in Mr. Dietrich's class. That's who it was. I don't know if any of you know who Mr. Dietrich was, but Mr. Dietrich got on to me, and he said, Jeff, by the end of class, you have to write 200 sentences, you know, like Bart Simpson on the... I don't know if I'm allowed to say Bart Simpson in a sermon, but I did. So I was over there. I was writing sentences like you have 200 sentences to write before the end of the class. Well, mathematically and time-wise, I would have to be a time traveler to do so. He knew this. And so I recruited as many people in the class as possible to also write sentences for me. And so at the end of class, I walked forward with all different types of paper, with all different types of ink, with all different types of handwriting. Some of it was pink and cursive, which is not not my handwriting at all. And I put it before him and I was like... 200 sentences. And so he began to count them. And then he looked at me and he said, "Okay, you can go." And then all those sentences that I didn't write was credited to my account, okay? So I did I was going to be punished. I was going to be I was going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But all those sentences were credited to my account. And as we get into this section of scripture, let me get you excited, okay? Because over the last Six, seven weeks, we've been talking about the depravity of man from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to 320 is one solid plea that whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're in trouble, right? You have have repressed the truth. You have pushed it down. You're walking in your own way. And these first two verses, I don't know if you're looking there, but now, but now we have good news. So let me get my readers out because I'm over 40. And let's see what this says. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the good news. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that but now there is hope for the sinner, and it is through Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone. And so right now, Father, I plead with you to draw people to yourself by your mercy and by your grace, that you would draw their hearts, that you would soften their hearts and you would draw them into a salvation that is through you and you alone, not by works. So Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your son Jesus and we thank you for accomplishing this in Christ's name, amen. But now, but now, these, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than just these two words, but Now, everything has changed. Things are different. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been made manifest. You can see it. So what we've known, we've known. We've been without excuse. So Romans 1, 19. So we understand this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We know that there is a God. We know that he has created all things, that he's put everything in order. As Isaiah 40, 25 through 28 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Oh, we are without excuse. There is a God who created all things and he's taken the host of heaven and he's placed them in their places and he's numbered them and he's named them. Scientists have some kind of idea of this. They would say the light travels at a speed of 5.8 or 87 trillion miles a year I can't even fathom that I didn't go to uh, a really good college no, just kidding I did but they also say that the galaxy of which our solar system is in is about 100,000 light years in diameter about 587,000 trillion miles we can't understand this it is one of about a million such galaxies galaxies in the optical range of our most powerful telescopes And as we read Isaiah, we're getting the understanding that every single star, every host of heaven has been placed in its place. And he knows it and he holds it together. And that is an overwhelming thought that there is a personal God who spoke these things into being. So therefore, there should be some kind of respect and reverence and wonder and dread and fear as we understand that we are a people who have fallen short of the glory of God. There is this idea that there's a God who holds all things together and one day we will stand before him and it will not be by a righteousness of our own because we have nothing to bring to the table. We possess an undeniable knowledge of God and also an awareness that things are not as they ought to be. We see evil, sickness, death, horrifying crimes. We know things are broken and our human condition is riddled with the guilt of it leaving us with an insatiable acknowledgement of our lack of achievement, which draws us to this idea of we must do something. We strive for something more, something else that we must do. We have all a subconscious desire to prove ourselves morally legitimate. And then we're met with this Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. We can try to be good, but it will never measure up. If you try to use the law for justification or to eliminate your guilt, you will either change the law to your own standard or you'll be crushed by the law. Either way, it leaves you with guilt. Either way, you're, you're left with a feeling of, I can't do it. I can't do enough. Guilt eventually leads you to either remorse or rejection there are many who have grown up with the knowledge that there is a God and they have tried their best and they've got to a point where they said you know what I just can't do it and so they've rejected God or they live in a constant fear and a constant remorse of the things that are going on in their life and they think there's no way God can love me and so they're just kind of stuck with this I'll never be good enough but now but now there's something so much better. But now there's, there's good news as we've turned the page here. But now, and I'm going to walk through three but nows this morning. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Amen. These are, these are going to be really creative points because they're going to be exactly what the Scripture says. So get ready for that, okay? Like really creative on my part. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, as Jesus would say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every religion and every culture believes that there's something you must do to be right before God except for Christianity. Every culture says that there's some moral standard, some spiritual record that one day you'll give an account for these things and you'll be weighed and you'll be found out whether you've done enough or you haven't done enough. It's like submitting a resume for a job. Isn't that the most terrifying thing you can do is submit a resume and you say, here it is. I, I kind of fudged a little bit on it, but you know, it's pretty much accurate. This is as good as it gets for me and I hope that you will accept me based on all the things that I've done and all the things that I know and all the things that I have on this piece of paper. And in case you don't, I'm going to give you some really good references, right? This religious resume just isn't going to cut it because the works of the law, you, you can't do enough works to be, to be right. But now, but now there's a divine righteousness, a the righteousness of God, a perfect record, record through the faith of Christ and the faith of Christ given to us. But now, it's not by works. It's been manifested to us. It's been revealed to us. Imputed righteousness is what theologians would call it. God's righteousness manifested and now credited to our account by grace through faith. But now there's hope because there is grace and there is faith. The righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here's the dangerous question. All right, well, what must I do to be saved then? If I can't do enough works, then what must I do to be saved? The same question that was asked in Acts 1629 through 31 by the Philippian jailer. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe. Faith. Faith is an instrument, not a work. Faith is an instrument, not a work. We're not saved by the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith. So faith. I like how Kevin DeYoung puts it. He gives this illustration. He grew up up north like some of you did, and he said you would love it when it got cold enough to go out onto, onto, onto the frozen pond and ice skate, something us Tennesseans know nothing about, right? And so uh, we have things like synthetic ice, which is like a horrible knockoff. but you would wait, so when it froze over, how are you going to know if we can go out there and skate? Well, you're going to pick the one that you want to you know, send out there. Like, all right, who drew the short straw, and who's going out to test the ice to see if the ice is thick enough for us to, to skate on it? Well, why does that person not fall through the ice? Is it because of their faith? I have faith. I'll do it. No, that has nothing to do with them staying, staying on top of the ice. Is it because of their work? Uh, well, I'll do it. If no one else will do it, I'll do it. No, that doesn't keep them on top of the ice. What keeps them on top of the ice is the ice. When we have faith in Christ, what saves us? Christ. It is not works. It's just an instrument by which we put our hope and faith in the work of Christ on our behalf. And we say, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, and I desperately need you. This is why Hebrews 12, would say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the founder of it. He's working it in you, he's perfecting it, and he's the object of it. Faith is in Christ. Listen to how Tim Keller puts it in his commentary. Faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. Oh, how many of us came today with empty hands? When a child asks his mother for something he needs, trusting that she will give it, he asks, his asking does not merit anything. It is merely the way he receives his mother's generosity. This is crucial because if you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and start looking at your faith. That's deep stuff right there. I want you to understand this. that If you begin to think that it's something you've done that saves you, you will take your eyes off of Christ and you'll start looking at yourself. Well, look what I've done. Look at how good I'm being, right? When you see doubts, it will rattle you. When you don't feel it quite as clearly or excitedly, it will worry you what has happened? You've turned your faith into a work. Faith is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. If you don't see this, you will think you have something to boast about. The reason I'm saved is because I put my faith in Jesus. Oh, that's a line, right? This is a subtle misunderstanding which cuts away our assurance and boosts our pride. Our salvation is by nothing we've done. And that's so hard to understand because grace is so hard to understand because there must be something on my resume that makes me worthy. The only thing we bring to the table is a whole thing of sin. And yet we're given grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself He no no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at, at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this Is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is an unmerited gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And if you think that you will receive more grace because you're being a good person, you don't understand grace. And a lot of times we think, if I'm just a better person, God's going to give me more grace. God gave you grace when you were the most horrible person. Faith is not your own doing. Jesus is the author of it, he's the perfecter of it, and he's the object of it. It's also the gift that saves us and sustains us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're familiar with this verse because it speaks to us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. We're, As the Greek word would say, we're lacking. We're missing the mark. Now I'm going to pick on the men who came to the last men's uh, men's meeting that we had, we had archery out there, and there was quite a few of you men who missed the mark, okay? Like, quite a few of you, you pulled back the bow and arrow, and it went in the woods, you know, I was afraid, like, when you pulled it back, it was going to kind of veer off to the side and hit somebody, but we had insurance, so it's okay. (laughs) You know, like, some of you though, when you pulled it back, you didn't realize that it would, it would fall before it got to the target. This is the idea that we are all doing our best and we're falling short. We are missing the mark. We've all missed the mark, whether Gentile or Jew, keeping the law, being moral, not being moral. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short. So Piper would say when Paul says everyone or everybody has sinned and lack or fallen short of the glory of God, he doesn't mean that we fell short of being as glorious. It means that we have taken that That was to be our treasure, and we have traded it like Esau for a bowl of oatmeal. This is high treason against the king of glory. Every human being has scorned and trampled the glory of God. Every single one of us has taken the glory of God, the one who holds the billions and billions of stars in the galaxy, and said, you know what? But this that's far lesser than him, I think I'll aim at that for my life. The question we must ask ourselves, are we willing to come empty-handed to Christ or are we still satisfied stuffing our face with the offerings of this world? The illustration goes that another illustration from the north, from someone who lives in the south, right? The illustration of Niagara Falls and the Niagara River, that there are often large pieces of ice floating down the river. Is this true? Anyone who's been there? Okay, some of you said yes. Okay, good. So there's large pieces of ice flowing down the river and they're headed towards the falls. And so you have this bird of prey who kills their prey and takes it and lands on the piece of ice and begins to devour the carcass. And it's eating it, and it's eating it, and it's eating it. And this is a great illustration. Some of you are loving this. It's eating this. There's blood all over the ice just so you get more of an <laughs> illustration there. Yeah, and then... And then it sees and it hears the the falls are coming. And it says, you know what, this is so good. I'm going to eat it until the last second, and then I'm going to take off. And I'm going to soar like wings of an eagle. And when it goes to take off, it doesn't realize that its talons have frozen to the ice. This is what a lot of us do with sin, pet sins. Sins that we're cramming our face with. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. It doesn't matter if no one knows it. I'm just going to keep doing it. And you know what? One day I'm going to ask for forgiveness. One day I'm going to turn things around. One day I'm going to change. One day I'm going to do all of these things. And you don't realize what a grip sin has on your life because you have fallen short. You have focused in on something lesser than the glory of God. And as Hebrews 12, 15 through 17 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace, the gift of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau could not find repentance because he simply had remorse. And those who stay in sin long enough may have such a hard heart that they can't repent, but they are just simply remorseful that they've missed out on something that was theirs, that was a gift. So two, but now, more good news, but now we are justified by his grace as a gift. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. These are three large theological terms. We're going to cover them real quick because but now there are three invocations to grace through faith in Christ. Three things that have taken place by faith. There's three things that have taken place that you had no part in, okay? This is great. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. These are big words. Justification, a good way to remember this is just as if I never sinned. It is a pronouncement that has been made upon you for you who are in Christ Jesus. It is just as if you have never sinned. He has declared you right or just before him and are justified by his grace as a gift. Wayne Gruden would say this. Justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sin as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. That is that imputed righteousness. We are forgiven and then we are granted his righteousness, it's like the sentences that were counted to my credit, right? This is what has happened. His righteousness is counted to, my, to my, uh, my credit here. Two, declares us to be righteous in his sight, just as if you've never sinned. The problem with this idea is that once we have been declared just, we still wrestle with sin. And so we're, then we're, we're met with this guilt of well, if I've been saved, if I've been forgiven, then why am I still doing this? Why am I still struggling with the sins that are in my life? Well, it's because justification is not sanctification. It's just not. He, he declares you righteous, but you're still working out that faith. He's perfecting it in your life. He's the author and the perfecter. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. He's still working in you. Justification is not a process whereby we become righteous It is the pronouncement that we are declared righteous all at once. This is what Martin Luther said is in Latin, so I'm really gonna struggle with this, right? Because I didn't take Latin. Simul justice et precator, okay? This is the idea that simultaneously, just, and sinner. Simultaneously, you're seen as just, justified, and also you're a sinner. You're still struggling with sin, am I right? but he has declared you righteous. That is justification. That means you brought nothing to the table, but you are seen as justified because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. What a beautiful gift that is. Amen? Justification, now redemption. Redemption is the liberation through payment of a price, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the ransom. As Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This word ransom, we get the idea and the connotation of of someone paying off a kidnapper or someone who wants to see a hostage released. So there must be a payment so that there could be someone set free. And so this is exactly what took place. Jesus was the payment, he was the ransom. And we are released, it's the redemption. So not only have you been declared just, you have now been set free. So the sins that you struggle with, here's the good news, you can overcome them because you've been freed from them. Okay, the sins that you struggle with, you can be freed from them in Jesus Christ. Amen, that's great news. Not only am I seen as just, but now I have hope because I can start living in the sanctification that he's working in me, this faith, so that I am making this progression Not that the progression saves me, but I can see that he is working in me and I'm being set free from the sins that are in my life. That is great news. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You were bought with a price. This gives us the imagery that Jesus is the Passover lamb. As N.T. Wright would say, the death of Jesus is indeed the new exodus. The moment when the slaves are free, God has supplied what the world needs, namely a release from slavery. Oh, you've been declared just. It's illegal, binding. He said it, he will complete it, and now he has liberated you from the bondage of sin and slavery. Just as the imagery of the sacrificial lamb in Israel was was slain and the blood was put on the doorpost, the wrath of God passed over those houses... But it didn't pass over the Egyptian houses because the blood did not cover it. Jesus is a ransom. As R.C. Sproul will say, Jesus ransoms us from the wrath of God, which means that we never need fear his condemnation if we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. In ransoming us from God's wrath, our savior also rescues us from bondage to sin and Satan. That means that we are no longer compelled to sin, but may please the Lord through our love of God and neighbor. As Christians, let us live out the reality that we are in Christ, daily turning from sin and walking in his ways by the power of the Spirit. Justified. Redeemed. And here's the, here's the difficult one, propitiation, right? You use that all the time in, in modern language. All the time. Propitiation can be translated mercy seat. It means to satisfy the demands of justice or to appease the wrath of God. We get the mercy seat idea. He says there, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. Leviticus talks all about the day of atonement, how all the sins of the town would be atoned for because there would be a sacrifice, a sprinkling of blood on the the mercy seat, on top of the ark. And so Jesus is now the mercy seat, and he's the sacrifice. All sins will be covered. The wrath of God will be annulled for those who are in Christ. As 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins. Only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The wrath of God has been removed for those who have faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Christ is our substitute. He took upon himself the wrath that we deserve to pay the penalty that was due and to satisfy the demands of God's justice. As John Murray put it, God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to end to the end that he may be that his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath he loves the objects of wrath so much that he was willing to give his son to pay the penalty for that to take away the wrath of God so just so you understand this this is the good news but now by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone there is justification you can be declared just by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone there is redemption you can be set free by grace Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there is a propitiation made that the wrath of God is no longer upon you. Amen? Man, this is good stuff. This is why Tony Marrita would say, Christian, you never have to live a day in fear of the Father's wrath. His Fatherly discipline is transformative, but not punitive. Let me explain that to you. He is a good father and he will discipline you and he will move you and mold you and shape you because he wants to see you grow in that sanctification. So he does that. He does move us in that direction, but he's not punishing you. There's a big difference between disciplining and punishing. A big difference between those two. He is not punishing you anymore. Jesus bore your punishment already. We are the Father's kids. He loves us. On our worst days, we can run into his presence, and he will not tell us, get out, but welcome. Praise God for the cross. A lot of us, we we fall into sin, and we think, God couldn't love me. God cannot love a sinner like this. A lot of us would say things like, you know, I think God's punishing me for what I did. That's not what scripture says. Scripture says that even when you were the object of wrath, he loved you enough to send his son to take the payment of wrath so that you don't have to stand under it any longer. But now, here's the last one. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is saying that God did not overlook sins committed before the cross. He didn't just push them to the side and pardon them. It means that he paid for them at the cross. The cross of Christ stands at the center of time, paying for sins both past, present, and future. Your sins are covered both past, present, and future if you are in Christ. You are justified, you're redeemed, and there's been a propitiation. The wrath is no longer on you. This is what he's saying. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles only. That's good news for all of us who are in Gentiles in here. Show of hands. I figured there'd be more. I figured there'd be more. <laughs> yes, of Gentiles also, since God is, is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Believers have nothing to boast in other than Christ. Believers have nothing to boast in other than Christ. Nothing. And when I think of boasting, I I get all these images of people who are so proud of what they've done, right? Look at what I've done. I'm so proud. But I didn't understand that there was a further dimension to that. Tim Keller also says this, what you boast in is what fundamentally defines you. It is where you draw your identity and self-worth from. So not only are you proud of what you've done, but now you're taking that thing that you've done and make it part of who you are. That's who I am. What I do is who I am. Men, we have a hard time with this. We describe ourselves by what we do. It's not our identity. We boast in things thinking that we took part in something. So what Paul says is, do you have anything to boast in because you took no part in this salvation? It is a free gift grace is a gift it's unmerited you can't earn it you don't deserve it you can't do enough things on a resume to come before the Lord and say look but I'm pretty good you should like me better than the other person right you can't do that the the ground at the cross is level for both Jew and Gentile my question is do you come before the Lord empty handed this means if you boast in your faith, in your works, in your morals, in your goodness, or your adherence, or your abstinence from certain things, then you've missed what it means to have your identity in Christ. It's in Christ alone. It reminds me of the song How Deep the Father's Love. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you no longer are punishing us but you have poured out your wrath upon your son. And, Father, for someone in here who doesn't know you, who has not come empty-handed, who has not come longing for grace because they have nothing to bring, Father, I pray you draw them to yourself right now, that you save souls. You are the Lord of salvation. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for faith. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. and We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. May we boast in you and you alone. Christ's name, will you stand, will you respond?